Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the gift of this city. This city in which you've placed this church, God, and we believe that there are great things yet to come because of who you are. Lord, we ask that you would bless these gifts and all given this morning. God, that people would know you more and that lives would be transformed. And all God's people said, amen. I need a little traveling music like the kids had, you know? I got a microphone here somewhere. Here we go. Good deal. Who is Jesus? It's a question that Patrick invited us to wrestle with last week. And I have been thinking about this week. Who is Jesus? How do you answer that question? How do you answer that question when asked by a stranger? When asked by a coworker? When asked by a friend or a family member? Or do you hope they don't ask? And where have your ideas about Jesus and who Jesus is, where, where have they come from? Have they come from Scripture? Or have they come from elsewhere? A History Channel special? Or a piece of popular literature? What do you believe about Jesus? In his book, Reimagining Evangelism, Rick Richardson asks this. He says, What are our boxes around Jesus that make him a tame and cliche Jesus? What are our boxes around Jesus that make him tame and cliche says, for many, the following list would look familiar. Jesus is Swedish and blue-eyed. Jesus is always nice. He'd never swear or shout. He's much too holy for that. Jesus hates conflict. He's always dialing down situations and turning the other cheek. And my favorite, Jesus' favorite hobby is cuddling sheep and children. How close does this come to your picture of who Jesus is? The greatest resource that we have is this book, this, this beautiful and rich text, this ancient text. The Gospels, for example, are 
are nearly 2,000 years old, written in a different language, more than 6,000 miles away. And yet we have this tendency when reading scripture to just lift words off of a page. Perhaps you've heard somebody even teach, you know, the, Jesus, or the Bible can answer all of your questions. Just, just open up and point to a spot. Friends, the fact that it's 2,000 years old, the fact that it was written in a different language, in a culture very different from ours, isn't a reason to be afraid of it. But it's a reason to understand that we need to wrestle with it. Because this scripture, this, this text that we have, this collection of writings, it, it is a gift to us. But we need to wrestle with it. We need to spend time with it. We need to chew on it. Medieval commentators would write that every piece of scripture must be chewed on slowly until, like a grain of spice, it yields its full flavor. Each piece of scripture needs to be chewed on slowly until it yields its full flavor. Over these next three weeks, we're going to spend time looking at three different sequential texts out of the Gospel of Mark, examining what they say about Jesus and who Jesus is. And together we're going to choose slowly, and I believe that together we'll discover a different Jesus than the sheep cuddler. I believe that we're going to discover a Jesus that, that says hard things, A Jesus that challenges the way we view the world around us, the manner in which we interact with the people that we meet, and of who it is that God calls us to be as God's people. As we dig into today's text, I want to invite you all to bow your heads and let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we believe that your spirit is here in this place. Lord, let it fall on us now so that we might better understand what this scripture says about who you are. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today's scripture comes out of the Revised Common Lectionary from today's gospel selection in the book of Mark. And we're, we're just kind of continuing on, uh, just skipping a few verses ahead from where Patrick left off last week. The writer says in verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. 
And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this text, in our text this morning, we observe these three things that Jesus tells his disciples something that they aren't prepared to hear. And then that the disciples say something that they wish Jesus didn't hear. And then Jesus says something that we don't know how to hear. Jesus says something that the disciples aren't, don't want to hear. The disciples say something they don't want Jesus to hear. And then Jesus says something that we don't know how to hear. But first, for, for the second time in as many weeks, in our text here in Mark, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And our first issue in understanding what is going on here is remembering that the disciples won't get this. The disciples shouldn't get this. For one, Jesus has been teaching in parables. All along the way, he's been talking about things, but not really talking about those things. He's talking about bigger things. He talks about a mustard seed, but he's really talking about having faith. Jesus talks about a lamp on a table, but he's really talking about being willing to be open about who God has called you to be. Jesus talks about bread, but not real bread, the bread of life. And over and over again, the disciples ask Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What, is, what are you trying to communicate? And then here, Jesus speaks literally. Jesus speaks literally and we wonder why it is they don't catch on. Well, they're, they're trying to find the deeper meaning. They're going, okay, so he's got to be talking about something else. But I think as we dig deeper, as we chew on this a little more, we can understand why it is that they think he must be talking about something else. Have you ever tried proofreading your own work? You've gone over it with a fine-toothed comb. You've fixed all the, the little spelling errors, all the places where you put and twice in a row for some reason. You reworded sentences so that your idea was communicated more clearly. You turn it in only to get it handed back to you covered in red ink by the teacher. You go, how did I do this? How, how did I miss this spelling error? Or, or, or why did I just write a sentence fragment here? What, what could I have been thinking when I, when I proofread and looked back over this? In a 2014 article in Wired, Tom Stafford, who's a psychologist from the United Kingdom, he's quoted in saying, by the time you proofread your own work, your brain already knows the destination. Your mind plays this trick on you. You see, because our brains, they're busy trying to formulate simple letters into words and then words into sentences and sentences into paragraphs in order to articulate complex ideas. And once 
your brain has arrived there, it knows the destination. It, it actually makes you unable to see where that's not happening. Because the destination has already been decided. What does this have to do with today's text? In last week's encounter with Jesus, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter finally responds, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. But here is what these disciples believed about the Messiah. Now, before we look at this scripture, I want to convince you first that they would have known these words. I've mentioned this in before here in this service before, but, but these disciples come from a Jewish culture that valued education. Everything was built around the synagogue, and so at a very young age, you were raised up in the educational system of the synagogue, and, and they were taught the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. And, and they weren't just taught it like we teach in Sunday school. They didn't know the highlights, like there was uh, a garden, and then there was a flood, and then they built this tower. They memorized it. Word for word, these young Jewish children would, would memorize the Torah. And then, and then those students that were, that were really good would go on to memorize the rest of Old Testament scriptures. So to say that they were familiar what was, with what was in the Old Testament is, is a slight understatement. In fact, one of the greatest things that you could become in this Jewish culture was a rabbi. You hoped that one day you would study hard enough that some rabbi would come along and say, come Follow me. But I want to look at these, a, a few texts that are in the Old Testament that talk about who the Messiah was going to be. This first text comes from Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And, and, and this is going to be familiar Christmas prophecy, right? For a child has been born to us, a son is given, authority rests on his shoulders. He's named a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His authority shall grow continually. There shall be endless peace. He will establish and uphold this kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forward. From the book of Psalms, we see this next piece of scripture. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter ruling in the midst of all of your foes. Amy, go to the next psalm. This is in Psalm 132. He says, There I will cause a horn to sprout out of David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed one. His enemies will clothe with disgrace, but on him his crown will gleam. They do not paint a picture of a crucified heretic as the Messiah. These disciples have the picture of one who will come to reign and be victorious, right? Who's going to be a king of righteousness, a wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. As they understood it, Jesus, who was the Messiah, was here to be this. Not an executed criminal. In other words, their brain already knew the destination. They had already decided and knew what this Messiah had come to do and so couldn't see what was right in front of them. Jesus is speaking literally. 
How are your expectations of Jesus preventing you from knowing the truth about who he is? How are your ideas about what Jesus has come to do framing your understanding and deciding upon the destination apart from Scripture? So first Jesus says some stuff that that they frankly aren't prepared to hear, and then they say some things that they wish Jesus hadn't heard. Looking back again at verses 33 through 35, we read, Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. In this rabbinic Jewish culture that we're talking about from 2,000 years ago, over 6,000 miles away, it would have been customary for the rabbi or teacher to walk in front as they were on a journey and for the disciples to follow behind. And so when Jesus, the rabbi, this teacher, is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he begins to call his disciples and say, come follow me, he doesn't just mean, hey, come on, let's go on this thing together. He actually means, follow me. Literally. That's what's going on. And so you get this picture of them on this journey and Jesus out in front and the disciples following behind and they're bickering. They're arguing over who is the greatest. And Jesus asks them when they finally reach their destination, what are you talking about? And 2,000 years later, you can almost hear the crickets. It it brings back uh, memories for me of uh, being on long road trips when I was a kid. Sitting in the back seat of the car with my sister and seeing those eyes in the rearview mirror. What's going on back there? So how does Jesus respond? He says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. One of Jesus' most famous saying, and I believe that it suffers from, from what some would call semantic satiation. In a recent article, A.J. Willingham writes this. He says, In the wake of last year's school shootings, the phrase thoughts and prayers has become devoid of meaning. It has been said so many times, it no longer has any meaning. In fact, I've found myself, and maybe you have as well, over the last six months or so, when someone shares that they are going through some crisis, and I say, my prayers are with you. In the back of my head, somehow, that what I am saying has no meaning. I find myself questioning it. And look, I believe that we worship a God who wants us to pray. I believe that we are called to pray. And so, it's not about whether it's fair or unfair, but simply put, when we say something again and again, it loses its meaning. Whoever wants to be first must be last. 
So here's the interesting thing. Jesus does not challenge the desire to be first. Hear that, because we immediately lose that. Jesus does not challenge the desire to be first. Jesus, however, redefines the way there. He doesn't say, don't be first, be last. He says, whoever wants to be first must make themselves last. In other words, in order to become first, we must first become last. And this isn't just wordplay, friends. A step further, if you make yourself last, you will eventually become first. When you figure out how to serve, you will become first. So, how will you become first? How will you become best? How will you become, as the disciples were asking, greatest? It'll happen when you figure out how to serve. How will our communities, our families, become first, become best, become greatest? When we learn how to serve, how will our country become great? When we learn how to serve, How will this church become first, become best, become greatest? When we learn how to serve here in this city. When Jesus finds us in our groups of people, in our meetings. Does he find us arguing about who is best? Does he find us arguing about who is greatest? Or does he find us arguing about how to serve. And then Jesus concludes this section. Telling us something that, friends, I I think that, frankly, we don't know how to hear. Because we hear it and read it with 2018 ears and eyes. Rereading again from verses 36 and 37, the gospel writer says, Then he took a little child and he put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. We see this picture of Jesus holding the child. That was well timed. And it's perfect, right? It's this beautiful image that we have in our mind. It's this perfect shot of Jesus in this beautiful, bright eyed child. It's the snapshot, right, that we have now of our politicians. It's the one they're looking for. It's going to be on the campaign ads. And even as I read these words, for some reason I can't read this story without hearing Whitney Houston singing Greatest Love of All, I Believe the Children Are Our Future. 
We read these words in the context of a culture that views children very differently than this culture did from 2,000 years ago, over 6,000 miles away. It's interesting because we've dialed in, so Jesus wants us to treat our children well. And I think in a lot of ways, we live in a culture now that does that. We've sort of raised them up, we've lifted them up, we've given them a space because it's important for them to be in worship here with us, right? But that's really not what what Jesus was saying here. Because Jesus is teaching in a culture where where children were not lifted up. Where where children were really seen as a burden. They were another mouth to feed in a lot of families. They couldn't work. They couldn't really help the family to provide. In many cases, they were a form of currency. That was their value. To be sold. To be bought. They were on the margins. They, they weren't front and center. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. This is the context. Jesus says, take the people that are on the outside, those that the rest of society would say are worthless, and serve them. Receive them in my name. So who are those people now? Who are those people that we force out onto the margins? Because that is what the teaching is about. Who is in your mind now? Because that's it. And for some of us, maybe it's ourselves. Maybe we are the marginalized. When I hear this, when I read these texts and the texts that we have in these coming weeks, friends, they're hard. They're hard to read. They're hard because they challenge us. They push us. They make us uncomfortable, just as they made people uncomfortable 2,000 years ago. They make me uncomfortable because I know and I'm even more aware how much I fall short. I am more aware that I am damaged, broken. In his book, Third Plate, New York chef Dan Barber is visiting this world-renowned seafood restaurant, and he writes this about the chef whose name was Angel. He says, Angel told me that the fish had been sold to him that morning just off the boat, but that the lot that he bought was badly bruised. Now, for a chef so obsessed with and knowledgeable about great seafood, I was surprised to learn that he went ahead and purchased damaged goods. The chef responded, of course I did. He said, fish bruise all the time, just like you, just like me, but they're no worse off. Isn't this what it means to be a chef? To use what is merely half usable? To create something exalted out of damaged goods? 
Friends, our text this morning begins with Jesus predicting that he is going to be crucified and rise again for the redemption of the world, not contingent upon how we receive the teaching, but because, frankly, we are going to struggle with the teaching. We worship a God who desires and treasures damaged goods and wishes to press them together in order to lift up and make something exalted right here in Fort Lauderdale. Friends, will you press together with me so that we might serve a people out there and that others might know of this God of damaged and bruised people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks that you are a God that values the damaged and broken, that values the young and the old. Lord, as we prepare to leave this place today, Help us to engage a culture that has a skewed perspective of who you are. Help us to be a people that are willing to wrestle and struggle with the truth of who you are. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for your goodness. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.